Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is Cody Sheehan. Cody was born with cystic fibrosis, which led to him requiring not one, but two new organs simultaneously. He's an amazingly optimistic guy with an amazing story to tell. But before I get to that, I just want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are just as important as each other. And just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Cody Sheehan. Cody, thanks for joining me. Where does the story start for you? Brilliant, brilliant question. You won't get guess this by my accent, which sounds very sort of typical uh, Australian uh, now, but I was actually born in the US and at six months of age, um, after my particularly my my mum was haranguing the the doctors to test me for CF. They actually didn't think that I had CF or didn't even think that I was demonstrating some of the the most common symptoms. But they did um, a sweat test and lo and behold, it it came back as um, positive, which they were a little bit shocked by. But mum was like, okay, well, at least we've got that now. How do we we deal with it? Because I'm not sure if it's changed, but back then, unlike it is here in Australia – Back then, screening at birth for cystic fibrosis wasn't uh, mandatory. So I guess sort of pre like the 2000 era, then a lot of younger CF kids were potentially not diagnosed till after they were one or even later. Luckily, we're in Australia now, so that's, that's, that's not a, a catastrophe, so to speak, I guess. Would it have been a lot more complicated if you were still in America? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, in fact, so Dad was working in uh, the travel industry quite intensively, and when he was put on assignment to come out to Australia, um, we kind of discovered, or Mum and Dad kind of discovered, how much better and ease of access to the um, Australian healthcare system and how getting good quality care without the waiting period or the cost attached to it was substantially easier uh, because of Medicare. They don't have that in the US. Um, So part of the reason that we eventually moved as a family and stayed in Australia was the fact that if I was going to be dealing with doctors and hospital visits and and all of that, it was going to be a substantially different, I guess, quality of life and access to quality healthcare that that wasn't going to break the bank. That's how we ended up staying here in in Australia. It was mostly for me to be able to have a a sporting chance at um, survival. We've sort of dived right in here. Can you give us a bit of an explanation on what cystic fibrosis is and what it looked like for you as a child, teenager, and now as an adult? Yeah, okay. So uh, cystic fibrosis, or the abbreviated version, which is CF, is the most common uh, recessive genetic disease affecting young people in, I guess you could say, the Western world, although the definition wouldn't say that. And it it kind of affects a few particular organs. So got the lungs, which gets sort of thick with sticky mucus and can develop bacteria that can then lead to multiple infections. And if that happens quite consistently over a number of years, and uh, if the bacteria isn't treated aggressively enough, you can get repeat infections, uh, eventually lung scarring, tissue scarring, and you'll eventually eventually go to or get to a respiratory failure and either 
require a, uh, a, a double lung transplant in, in CFs or it will eventually kill you, which is, which is quite sad. I've lost quite, in fact, I've lost count of how many um, CF friends that I've lost over the last 10 years or whatever. So that's kind of the main area where CF affects. You also get digestive issues. So your pancreas doesn't work. The most CFs who live sort of well into their 20s, 30s and 40s may develop diabetes. So you've got the, the blood sugar diabetes thing to, to worry about. You've got the, um, about 20% of CF cases will have fairly intensive liver disease, which can lead to cirrhosis. So a decent sort of minor percentage of um, CF adults will develop chronic liver disease and then eventually get cirrhosis and may or may not uh, be requiring a, a liver transplant like the, like the lungs may, may need transplant as well. And then you've got um, a whole bunch of other health ailments like you've got bone issues you'll have reproductive issues uh you can have like heart issues and sleep issues just as side effects of all the other stuff so a lot of people will refer to it refer to cystic fibrosis as a breathing disorder but it really like if you look deeply enough it affects every almost every single aspect of of the body just maybe not in a completely life-threatening way so that's kind of cf for most people in terms of how it affects the body in terms of treatment you've got physio to help try and clear the airways that's a big big component of, of treatment most people do that twice a day either with some sort of physical exercise or a device that will help them to do airway clearance and get out most of the mucus then you've got uh, inhaled nebulized antibiotics to help try and keep any bacteria at bay or, or kills off some infection and then you've got the uh, the digestive enzymes because um, your, your pancreas doesn't work. And then if you've got diabetes on top of that, then you've got checking blood sugars and administering insulin if you're on insulin. I myself have been on an insulin pump for a, a few years now. It's multiple med medications per day. It's it's hours, can be hours of, of treatment and just tr essentially trying to exist and like not to so much thrive, but just to, just to be living breathing and existing in in life i guess so that's kind of what what cf is for, for most people um including myself however four years ago now that took a dramatic step well actually no, closer to five years ago i had a two very large drops in my lung function which caused my cf doctors to say look things have changed we need to discuss and look at the the route of uh, transplantation because you we doubt that you're going to get to like two or three years beyond where you are now if you have any more of these um big hits to, to your lung function and it might be really really difficult to gain that function in your breathing back so after probably a few weeks of talking to as many people as i knew just to get their sort of opinions on it i'd already had a thought of leaning towards transplant but I just wanted to get a lot of other people's uh, perspectives on it so the day came I said no look let's do the let's do the workup if you're going to go for transplant you have to for any organ got to do complete a fairly uh, lengthy workup process um, get a lot of boxes ticked blood tests so many medical tests um, and and then they list you um, so it took me about a year to complete the whole workup process get the whole list complete, blood tests, tissue typing, 
so many different scans and approvals and ticks from so many different doctors. And then I was put onto the, the waiting list. Now, what makes, what makes my case su- even more, more super unique is the fact that I wasn't going to just need lungs. I was also going to need a new liver because the CF had attacked my liver in such a way that I was walking around with what would have been classified as a six-year-old alcoholic's liver, um, which is what the surgeons told me when they when I, I came to an ICU. So the process was super, super risky from the surgical perspective because there was a much higher risk of me um, having a complication or dying or a number of things could go substantially wrong. But they kind of said it would be too dangerous for you to do single organ surgeries. Your lungs won't survive a liver transplant and your liver won't survive a lung transplant. You're going to have to have all of it done at once. So it was quite a process going through all of that. And I was on the waiting list for seven months with two what they call dry runs, which is when the coordinators call you to say, okay, it looks like we're going to do the surgery, but then for, for some reason or another, it has to be cancelled because of, there's an issue with the donor or there's 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 something wrong that it, it can't be done. So the first dry run happened on Christmas Day. It was really, really exciting for about a, a, an hour until the, the coordinator called me back and said, oh, we're going to have to cancel this. Apologies. Sorry to call you on Christmas greatest Christmas present that you could receive and now we have to cancel. I said, no, look, I, I understand that it, it happens. But in my head, I was telling myself, okay, I'm, I'm, it's going to happen soon because I'm right at the top of the list, which was exciting. So every time my phone rang and it said no caller ID was going to be, it was going to be uh, St. Vincent's calling about organs. So I was a little bit nervous every time I saw, I saw that pop up on the on the phone. The second dry run happened the day after Australia Day. The weird thing about the second dry run is that um, I got all the way um, into theatre, all prepped. I was knocked out even. And just before I was drawn up where they were going to do the incisions. And then at the 11th hour, the retrieval team called through to the surgeons and said, no, we have to cancel this. We would there's an issue here. We it's too high a risk to, to perform. So the next thing I knew, I was waking up in St. Vincent's ICU with the intubation tube down my throat, and I felt like garbage. So you'd actually been knocked out, ready for surgery, and you're waking up thinking, it's done, I've had my transplant, Yeah. why do I still feel horrible? What's that feeling like when uh, they tell you it hasn't been done? It was, I think I was more focused on feeling as horrible as I did versus the fact like versus feeling upset that it wasn't that it wasn't complete because I do like the first things I I recall in those uh, minutes was um, trying to open my eyes and my eyes were literally glued shut or felt like they were glued shut so trying to pry my eyes open was really difficult and I was sort of feeling around my chest area to see if I could feel any bandages I felt nothing like, okay, something's gone wrong and like this isn't supposed to be how it is because not only only do I feel awful, but this isn't like, <laughs> transplant definitely hasn't happened. So something's clearly not gone the way that it, that it should have been. So I actually needed a second admission at Westmead after that uh, attempt because 
my already sick lungs had to almost sort of be reactivated because they were like the sedation was so heavy that I was like, oh. Um, and anyone with CF lungs will know that uh, any form of sedation can have a huge effect on already compromised lungs. It just makes the, the breathing process much, much harder, thicker, slower. So I needed a second admission to try and recover from that, which was also quite, quite daunting. Anyway, about a little, le- probably a little less than a month later, I'm at home and I, ha- I feel this sort of gurgle uh, in, my, in my chest and I thought, okay, this, this can't be good. And I run to the bathroom and I just start coughing up pure fresh blood, like no mucus or no gross bits, just, just fresh blood and I can't really stop the coughing and dad hears me and and uh comes running and he i couldn't even respond he just said i'm calling the the ambos and i think that they got to me within five minutes or something luckily i had stopped the coughing uh just as they were arriving but that in itself was was quite terrifying the the really scary part to that is the following night when i was admitted to westmead the same thing happened again but so much worse i I really had to concentrate on trying to stop because every every breath I tried to take would just result in a cough, which which brought up more blood. Which sounds really gross, and it was was it was, but it was also terrifying. I actually had a the the thought went through my head: Am I going to die here tonight? Is this going to be it? And I had I think there were at least four nurses, uh, probably three doctors. There were lots of people running in and out of, of, of where my hospital bed was. There were alarms going off like crazy. I had all sorts of electrodes on me, and it was it was like kind of like how you see it on the those um, medical TV shows where ambulances come flooding in, and someone's like on a respirator, or about to like their life is hanging in the balance of the surgeon's hands, and literally minutes to to make a decision whether it's going to be life or death. It it had that vibe on the hospital ward that night and I said to myself don't be one of these people who doesn't walk out of this hospital like you can do this get it together so I I tried to block out all the all the people who were running around panicking trying to get doctors to come and attempt to to save me and I I kind of I just went into my mind and I said calm down and get a grip of this breathing and get a grip of this coughing and after about what felt like ages but it was probably only maybe two or three minutes I just focused on the breathing and just tried to to bring uh, myself to calm down to to at least talk I couldn't talk for for any of this time period just each breath I was taking in was just coughing and then blood cough like breath in cough blood it's just ridiculous I don't know how I did it, but I managed to summon all the the strength in my body and in my mind to get control of that. Like, so after all of that, um, that night they took me down to have it, what they call an emergency bronchial embolization to um, go in through uh, an artery and uh, put what like some sort of clogging agent into the the lung tissue that was bleeding just to buy me some time. So that, so they did that that night, and it kind of it, it it did help. And then a week later, a week later, I was still in hospital, and my phone rings at seven o'clock in the morning, and it said no caller ID. 
and I pick, uh, went, I bet this is it. I answered it. Hey, Cody, it's so-and-so from St. Vincent's. Are you still at Westmead? I said, I am, yeah. And they said, okay, cool. We're going to need to organize an ambulance to transfer you over because we have heart, sorry, we have lungs and a liver for you today. Like, I managed to get up. I ran out to the nurse's station <laughs> and I was like, I got the call. And they're like, huh? And I, I, I kind of shouted it for the whole ward here. I was like, I got the call. <laughs> And they said, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Okay. I said, Vinny's are organizing um, an ambulance and, yeah, it'll be here within the hour and I'm going to go pack. And I said, okay, cool. And then oh, I love telling this part of the story. In the ambulance, going hooning through rush hour traffic with the lights and the sirens uh, blaring, I asked the paramedic, um, should, I, should I tweet this or should I go live on Facebook? And you're like, you're about to have a transplant. Why are you asking me about social media? <laughs> so I'm like, screw it. I'm just, and then I decided to, to do a live for like maybe half 30 seconds in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And it kind of went off after that because all, all of my US friends were like, oh my God, you got your call. This is fantastic. So that, that was cool. And I don't think that anyone else who's had any sort of organ replacement has ever done that so that that was kind of funny it's crazy and slightly strange but just just funny mate it's your transplant do it your way <laughs> so that was all pretty intense and then we get to Vinny's and all my family were starting to sort of get a bit teary and um I was like, no, we're not going to do the tears. I'm going to say, see you later, because everything is going to go brilliantly. So they said, okay, see you later, see you later. I said, all right, cool. Give everyone a hug. And uh, they wheeled me into surgery. And I fist bumped everyone and said, we're going to rock this, and it's going to be brilliant. All right, and then knock me out. <laughs> and then it was it's almost like black and white. So the next thing that I recall is waking up again in ICU with no intubation tube and being a, it's almost felt like I had a, the weight of an elephant sitting on my chest. There was a lot of chest tightness, but no struggle to breathe. I'm like, wow, this is weird. This is cool, but this is weird. And, um, I, it, I didn't struggle to open my eyes. I was like, wow, this is, this is just bizarre. And I could look down and I could see, the incisions. I'm like, wow. So this has actually happened. This is just. I reckon for about two days, it was utterly surreal. The fact that um, that had happened feels like a bit of a saga now. Only because, like, now it's it. Life now is is yes, it's substantially different, but it's it's a different kind of, of different. I'm not even sure if that makes sense, but yeah, does that make sense or? Mate, it makes perfect sense. Even the fact that it's a little bit confusing just gives us an insight into what's going through your mind and how you process this. Now, speaking of how you process it, well, you're very excited uh, that you can breathe better and you're now recovering at a fast speed. How is it knowing that this, this gift came from another person that's no longer with us? Everyone I meet and talk to now, I try to sort of uh, give them a bit of a, um, a spiel on... Uh, the importance of it, because I don't think enough Australians are aware of all of the the positives that, that can come out of such tragedy. And I think even some CFs have um, can have a difficult time 
with understanding that yes, it's it's foreign organs. They used to be, to belong to somebody else, but now they're going to help you to keep you alive, you functioning, and you hopefully living living well. And I think whilst that can be a bit a bit strange at times, I think it's important to just you know take not take not it's not accountability. It's it's taking some maybe like a point of remembrance or something, just being like someone died and I'm here. I'm enormously grateful for that. Um, and if I can do something that's going to either be part of their legacy or make them proud or do something that's going to help a bunch of other people, like completely without benefit for myself, like that's, I think that's a, a, a good way to sort of look at things in terms of that whole process, which can be a bit sort of confronting. But that's, I guess, it, it's given me. It's given me the opportunity to do a number of things, like to continue with uh, my fundraising for both Donate Life, for diabetes, for cystic fibrosis, um, and I've been doing all the all of that with my um, my CF team, which is called the CF Avengers, and it's allowed me to to, to tour uh, the US with them and to provide some coffee machines, some sandwich makers, some teddy bears to to sit kids and their families in hospital. Elaborate a little bit, mate. Tell us about the CF Avengers and who they are. Totally. In 2012, when Iron Man first came out in cinemas, I was quite obsessed with the film. Robert Downey Jr. is one of my absolute favourite people in terms of film and Hollywood. He's just a bit of a genius, and he's just a great person. So much to the point that when the Avenger film came out, it was right around the time that the biggest CF fundraising event called 65K465 Roses, the Walkathon, was leading up, and I wanted a... I wanted to create a team that was going to be like superhero based to take part in that walk. So I'm like, hang on, the CF Avengers just sounds like it rolls off the tongue and it's, it's incorporating the CF part of it. It's incorporating the heroes of the Avengers. The CF Avengers was born. We're on uh, Facebook and Instagram predominantly. And we're a, a, an international team of, 25 maybe 26 now um we've got team members in australia we have team members in new zealand in south africa um and quite a heavy team base in uh the u.s as well we as a team we aim to bring awareness as much awareness as possible and kind of make it a bit fun um because cf is still predominantly a childhood childhood illness and um, if we can bring some joy to the kids and the the adolescents and teens in hospital who might be struggling, their parents and families might be struggling, then that's where we we aim to to bring some some laughter and some smiles whilst raising as as many funds as we can to um, to help support them. So we we do a f- I, I did a tour through the US. The whole purpose of that was to bring more awareness, um, raise as many funds as we could and to make a, a little sort of stopping visit to as many of the, the patients and the sufferers as, as possible and just to bring them some joy and some hope. So we generally take uh, part in the 65K465 Roses 
Walkathon, which is held here in Sydney um, most years, although the last couple of years due to COVID, it's been postponed, but we're uh, aiming to get to to next year. Um, and yeah, that's, if you see a dude, a, if you see a skinny guy, skinny tall, tall guy dressed as Captain America with a, a backpack shield, that's probably me. <laughs> It's amazing work you guys do, and I absolutely love uh, the idea of the CF Avengers. Uh, your dad's also wrote a book that's coming out later this year. Dad had gone to his publisher, New Holland, and said, I want to do these these particular books. And they said, no, you're not going to write any of these. You're going to do this book. So he's written my story through the, the eyes of, of, of him. Uh, it's coming out, I think it's mid-August we're aiming for, for the, for the release uh, it's called Cody and I, and it's uh, subtitled uh, "Breathing Through a Straw." We're aiming for for Father's Day, so I guess to look at CF in a nutshell, to look at my life pre transplant, it was sort of one thing, and then if you look at my na- life now post transplant, it's quite different for all, what I call all of the right reasons. I don't have to do a lot of the the CF daily maintenance that most that most CFs would do, and that's simply because the lungs and the liver don't have CF anymore. Um, my body will still always have CF because it's it's part of the gene, or the genes, I should say. But those two organs won't ever have CF just because they're essentially healthy. So I've traded, I guess, copious amounts of nebulizers and physio for more pills but even the pills themselves um i think i'm on about on the heavy days maybe a a third of the total pills that i was taking pre-transplant which is which is quite extraordinary and just literally i'm hooning around everywhere like the people who are close to me say dude like you were you were nuts before transplant we can't keep up with you now like you just your enthusiasm for living every day to the max and squeezing the, I'm going to use a word from one of, one of uh, I think it's called Walter Mitty, squeezing the quintessence out of life has become like your whole motto. Like just, we don't know how you do it, but we love the fact that you do it because we can just see it and absorb it and just be around it. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to go from being so ill to being, so not ill. It's it's quite an extraordinary thing. So the process of, of living well um, also comes with you know how you sort of build and create create your lifestyle. So finding work that was uh, complementary to that, I guess, has been a little bit difficult. Um, one of my actually no my 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 best friend her name's Karen and she and her husband uh, founded a place called uh, Wellshare. And it's um, it's co-working space for uh, health, wellness, and beauty. And we're in the Dimmicks building. Working there has, I believe, allowed me to to cultivate a really good sense of lifestyle and and well-being. Like you spend so much time at work, you should really enjoy it. Like you should really. Um, be doing things that that you like doing. You should be working with people that you enjoy being around. Um, and if because if you don't, it can it can really bring your sort of mental health, your, even your physical health physical health into to question. Um, so I'm enormously grateful for for them and for the people 
uh, at Wellshed that that I work with. Mate, life hasn't dealt you the best hand, but you're one of the most optimistic, enthusiastic people I've ever spoke to. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I ask everyone the same question at the end of the episode. What would you say to someone who was thinking about or was unsure about signing up to be an organ donor? That's a brilliant question. And I think that question in itself is either going to make or break um, that decision. But here's how I kind of explain it. Anyone who talks to me now, I say, if it weren't for organ donation, I simply wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I would be as, as plain and simple as it is, dead. And for as tragic as uh, death can be, at a time of tragedy, you can do, you can give the absolute greatest gift that money cannot buy. You, there's, there's nothing about uh, transplant and organ donation that requires any form of currency. It's the greatest gift one human can give to another. I encourage everyone I talk to, to it literally takes one minute on the website. If it, if it weren't here, I simply would not be alive. It's as simple as that. When I put it in that sort of perspective, I think it, I think it really helps people to go, okay, it's actually not that big of a deal. That's how I, that's how I frame it anyway. Cody Sheehan, you've got an amazing story. Thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. See, I told you he was optimistic. Even after everything life's thrown at him, he lives every day to the fullest and flies the flag for Donate Life, cystic fibrosis and uh, diabetes. I hope after hearing his story, you might go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to be an organ donor and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or rating, maybe even share it on your social media. I hope it's swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor. If you did sign up after hearing this or you've got any questions or comments about the podcast, drop me a line, donatelifepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to Tara Duke. Tara will be telling us about her daughter, Maya, who started having problems from birth and required a new liver to have anything resembling a normal life. I hope you'll join me, and I hope you'll make the decision to donate life.